Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode number 15 of the Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. What's up guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to have you back here every week, tuning in and sharing on the Nathan R. Seawood Facebook page. There's been some great chat on there this week, which I appreciate. Thank you for tuning in. Great feedback on the show with Rich Litvin last week. It really struck a chord with those of you that listened. It was... Some things he said about being introverted and being an introvert in business and kind of growing up lonely and then marrying an extrovert and navigating that and trying to understand how being an introvert affects life and business for him. So that was a particular theme that I heard coming through that people really enjoyed. So if that is something you relate to, go back and listen to last week's episode with Rich and I promise you'll get something out of it. I'm back in Tokyo. I've been working all week, flying my little ass off. I was in Honolulu to start with. I met some incredible people. Actually, one of my clients was there, so we went out for dinner, and he's doing incredible things. Since we started working together over a year ago, his business has just grown exponentially, and he's really changing the industry he's in. He's He put out a really controversial blog post to a whole lot of industry insiders this week, and he got something like 180,000 views and caused a big stir, and he's just loving life. He's completely in his zone of genius. He's mixing up the industry that he's in and he's making a shit ton of money and he feels really happy and satisfied as well which me as a coach to see one of my clients just absolutely blossoming uh, you know after only a year or a year and a half worth of work is so fulfilling for me and it was great to catch up with them in uh, in Hawaii this week. I had so many great conversations with a whole bunch of different people this week. James Butler and I chatted this week and we're going to do some stuff together. Uh, I spoke to a whole load of people that are interested in joining my group coaching program which is now open so let me put this out to you. If you're interested in getting into personal development, if you've been reading personal development books, you've been following blogs, you've been watching videos, and you're ready to take the next step without breaking the bank, my group coaching programs are incredible. It's a place where you can come and meet with like-minded people. So you know who I work with. It's entrepreneurs, it's professionals, it's high-performing professionals, the rule breakers, the game changers of the world, the enthusiastic people that are out there to make a difference for other people and for their own lives. And so in my group programs, the idea is to bring four or five of you together in a group where we meet online. So it's not in person, it's online. We have a a conference call for about 90 minutes every two weeks. And it just is this beautiful container where you can be vulnerable, you can come and bring your challenges, you know, because a lot of high performers struggle to have somebody to open up or talk to as they get more and more successful. So having a place where you can come where uh, you can just open up share your challenges, celebrate your wins as well, like just fucking brag about what you're doing incredibly, you know, in this in this life and what you're struggling with. I'm coaching the whole time, so I'm coaching each of you as we go through the time, so you're getting really deep support from me, and you're hearing other people get supported through their issues. And so there's just this incredible sense of sacred space, if that's how I can put it, just this beautiful community of openness, vulnerability, connection, support, love, all the big buzzwords. It's the best I can do to explain it without you having to experience it. But no matter what your goals are, if you want to get ahead in life, if you want to feel more fulfilled, if you want to start chasing one of your dreams, if you want to start making a shit ton more money and feeling more connection and support, reach out to me. 
email me nathan at nathanseward.com in the subject line put group coaching so i know what you're calling about and uh, we'll have a conversation and i'll see if you might be a fit for one of these uh, group coaching programs because i'm very picky with who i put in each group Uh, so exciting so this week on the show i've got an incredible guy his name is jason goldberg i first met jason at a uh, coaching event in san diego we immediately hit it off because jason's one of these guys that you don't come across very often he's massively high energy he's unapologetic he's hilarious he's a uh, a speaker an entrepreneur he's done a ted talk and one thing about jason is he used to be really overweight he was up to i think 330 pounds at one stage which uh what's that 150 kgs and he lost 130 pounds 60 kgs uh over the last few years and so we go really deep in this conversation at one point about that journey to losing weight which you know thank you to Jason for being so open because it's such a sensitive issue and it it was a really beautiful conversation we had around that. Jason also talks about a whole lot of themes. The great thing about talking to a uh, a motivational speaker is they have all these awesome concepts that they've packaged up that you can apply into your life straight away. And you're going to hear a couple of things that Jason talks about and things that I've applied in my life. I, I told him a story about one of the things he taught me that I applied when I was on my trip in Liberia in Africa. So there's so much gold in this one. You're going to absolutely love this episode. So I'll let you settle in and uh, listen to Jason's story. We joined the story when I asked Jason to tell me all about his upbringing in America with his uh, salon hairdresser mum, which is a very fun story. So enjoy this personal conversation with the powerful Jason Goldberg. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was born in uh, North Miami Beach, Florida, and I was and raised in Florida. I lived in Florida almost my entire life until just about a little less than three years ago. My wife and I decided to move to Raleigh, North Carolina. So we live there now. But I was raised by a single mother, uh, only child, single mother. And my father, I've never met before. My father left my mom when she was five or six months pregnant. He didn't want to have a, a child. It's not like he was young and dumb and didn't want to have a kid. Like I, I think he was probably, he was probably, I'm guessing around 40 when my mom got pregnant. So, so I mean, he was a grown man. He had a daughter, I guess, from another marriage. So I have a half sister I've never met before. Oh. Um, and luckily with the age difference, I don't think I would have accidentally ever hooked up with my half sister. <laughs> <Not much>. Good <laughs> to know. <laughs> Yeah. I've, I've always had this internal age thing where I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to go and, and be with any women that are like seven or eight years older than me just to be safe. Uh, so, so, so no worries. Yeah. Yeah. No worries there. And yeah, so she raised me by herself. Now she had, you know, uh, the support of uh, my grandparents and she also has two brothers. One is her twin brother who was kind of like a father to me growing up. And, and my grandfather was around in that way too. So I had a couple male influences, but for the most part, I was raised in a house full of women because I was raised by my mother And then she always had, for the majority of the time that, you know, I lived in the house with her, uh, she always had female roommates. So it was my mom, it was female roommates. And then on top of that, the entire time growing up, you know, from the time I was probably, I don't know, six years old until even now, my mom has worked in salons. She was a, you know, a beautician, a nail technician. And so I would be the kid, you know, kind of in the back of the salon doing his homework. But it also meant that I was surrounded by tons of feminine energy, like everywhere I went, home feminine energy, my mom's job, feminine energy. So that kind of feminine energy actually became, I think, a default 
go-to for me and even still is to this day, I tend to lean more easily into feminine energy than masculine energy. So, so that's kind of how the, the dynamic of, of my, my home life was growing up and, and we can go anywhere you want from there. I don't know yeah, how far you want to, to me. Uh, yeah, I, I was raised by two parents. So I'm very interested what it was like. Did you, did you know that that was something different being raised, you know, by your mother only? Was there a, a story or a moment where you realized, Hey, this is, you know, maybe not the norm. You know, I, I don't, I don't consciously remember ever thinking that. And the good thing was, is like I said, even though she was a single mother, you know, we had family around, which was awesome. Yeah. You know, everybody lived local and, and I had, you know, some cousins and stuff. So I, it was never like a lonely thing, but, but it is funny that you say that because I, people have asked me several times throughout my life, you know, Oh, did you, did you miss not having a father? And my answer is always, I don't know. Like, I don't, I, I, you know, if, if you ask a child who's never seen TV before, like, Oh, do you miss watching TV? They'd be like, I don't, how the fuck would I know? I've never watched TV before. So like, I don't know if I miss having a father because I, you know, if he had been there and left, then I could answer that question. But having him never, ever been there, then I'd say no. But then it was actually funny, like even this morning, and I wasn't even consciously thinking necessarily about the interview, but I was, I was shaving this morning and I was sitting there thinking like, who taught me to shave? Mm. And then, and then I remembered, I remembered a time where my uncle Philip, who's my mom's twin brother, who would take me pretty much every Saturday when my mom would be working in the salon and he and I would just hang out and we go to like, you know, computer shops and like, you know, do, you know, fun stuff together. I'm pretty sure he's the one that taught me. And then in that moment I was thinking, shit, if I have a son one day, if I have a kid and, and I don't know that we're going to have kids, but if I had a kid, like shit, I would be maybe kind of uncomfortable teaching him the stuff that fathers teach their kids because that I, I didn't have that. So, so it was just funny that even as of this morning, I was like, wow, I wonder what I don't know that would be challenging to teach a kid because I never had a father. That's so interesting that I, you didn't miss out on anything. Like my dad never taught me to shave and it's something I still am annoyed (laughs) about to this day. (laughs) I I, I used to just sneak into his bathroom after he'd gone to work, grab his electric razor and start shaving my face. And it was like, okay, I guess I'm shaving now. Because I'm I'm a kid that shaves now. This is how this goes. So you didn't miss out on anything there. Yeah, you figure it out, right? I mean, and I guess that's the thing too, is that like, you know, as as human beings, a lot of times I think, you know, we think we learn things because people teach us. And a lot of times we learn things despite people teaching us. Yeah, absolutely. I love the image of you sitting there doing your algebra homework in the back of the salon, you know, listening to like all the gossip of Florida. (laughs) Dude, no, it gets even worse. I got to tell you a funny story. I don't know if I've ever told this story on a podcast before. So, so funny. So, so I'm the kid in the back of the salon, but I'm also like super charismatic, right? So I'm not the kid like that's like the wallflower in the back of the salon. I want to be involved in the gossip. Like I want to, I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I'm the ham. I'm the class clown, you know? And so it got to a point where there was one, there was one point when my mom had her own salon and a big contingency of her clients were strippers, right? They were wow. exotic dancers, yeah. which, which was awesome. Like I'm a straight Did you know dude. that as a kid? You know, I... I think at some point I finally did, probably not yeah. in the beginning, but I, I feel like the time where they, they really were coming in the most, I was like maybe 12 or 13. And by that point, yeah, dude, well, I knew. Given. Like, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it was, it was <laughs> fucking great. But here's the greatest thing is that like to keep me busy sometimes, and I love this, this just shows how creative my mom is. To keep me busy sometimes, they would have me, my mom or somebody else in the salon, would have me put temporary tattoos on the strippers. Wow. Now, this sounds like something that you should call Child Protective Services about, but I, I, didn't, I wasn't putting it on their nipples or anything. Like, it was on their shoulders and stuff. But, like, Thank imagine God. this 12 or 13-year-old kid with half a boner putting on, you know, a fake tattoo on these strippers' <laughs> arms while they're getting their nails done. It's it an education. Yeah, it, it's a, it was a true education. It was amazing. Yeah, no dad could teach you that. No dad. No dad could teach you that at all.
That's great. So, you know, that uh, what I love about you is your sense of humor and your energy and your enthusiasm. So you kind of touched on it there as being that sort of class clown type thing. So how did that play out as you, you got older? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny that the the whole class clown thing and the whole like, you know, wanting to be on stage and, and, and all that stuff, I, you know, when I think back onto how that was developed and, and, and I love this lesson for myself and, and I think it's powerful for other people to hear is that that wasn't developed as a conscious like, oh, how would it be fun for me to show up in the world kind of thing, right? Like I'd love to say like, oh yeah, I knew early on that performing was my thing. Like I think what it was was that growing up as a kid who did exhibit more feminine tendencies and, 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 you know, the, still even to this day, the whole feminine masculine thing is just, is a real, I think is, is a real, it's a head scratcher. It can fuck people up. And they think like, you know, if you're a man and, and you have this, this view of what masculinity looks like, and then if you're like empathetic or you cry, then you're not being masculine. Like when I say I had feminine tendencies, it doesn't mean I put on fucking high heels and wore women's underwear. You know, this is, this is about like kind of maybe leading more with my heart than with my head. Right. And so as a younger person leading as a younger man, as, as a, you know, a teenager, a young teenager or late, you know, late preteen leading with your heart is not something that the other dudes around you are super used to or super comfortable with. And so I think that that was something where me being like the nurturing by nature, I'm just a nurturing kind of person. I think again, because of my upbringing is that I would kind of, you know, get made fun of a little bit for that. And maybe get called names even by my own friends. And maybe, you know, they meant it in jest, but, but it was, you know, kind of getting made fun of. And so at some point between that and my other major shortcoming or, or the thing that affected me uh, in my life was my weight, my physical weight. I was always an overweight kid. And of course, you know, kids are, especially when you're a teenager, they're, you know, really loving and accepting of you. Oh yeah. They're just, they would never judge you based on your appearance. Uh, and so like at 15, I was 250 pounds and I was maybe five foot six, five foot seven. So I was a big kid. And, and so I got made fun of a lot. So I think to, to, to kind of bring this full circle, I think the things like comedy and humor and, and performing were my way to counteract the fact that I felt like I didn't have a whole lot of value. I knew I was really smart. I knew I was like scholastically intelligent, but again, scholastically intelligent, not the cool thing when you're a preteen or a teenager. So I needed to find something that could make me feel like I had some value. And, and I had a really natural inclination, I think a lot because my family, a lot of performers in my family, you know, music background and, and people that did comedy stuff and acting. So I, I was exposed to that a lot. And so I think I realized like, oh, you know what? I'm pretty good at like making people laugh. I'm, I'm pretty good at kind of, you know, just putting myself out there and, and maybe being silly and goofy and not really giving a shit about it. And when I do that, I tend to get some love. And maybe I get I get less criticism. I, I get more love than criticism in those moments. And so I think it was developed initially as a way just to feel valuable in the world. And luckily for me, it became something that really serves me in the work that I do now and in the way I show up in the world. So the lesson for me there is like no matter how the, the gift comes, like no matter what the source of the gift is, we don't need to to judge that source and we don't need to beat that source up or question that source. We can see that it really does serve us, even if it takes, you know, 20 years to figure that out. It's a beautiful message. I really relate to the, well, being raised more from the heart, you know, that that, that way of being. Because I think my, my dad, it was his second marriage. He already had four kids from a previous marriage. He was mm -hmm. busy. He worked hard. And so I was definitely a mummy's boy. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I, I feel very strongly that I was raised in that same kind of way, just to lead with a big heart, a lot of care, a lot of compassion. And the next part of that is that got shut down very quickly, I feel. High school was mm. really tough for me as well for, for lots of different reasons. And yeah. so I relate to having the, 
that big heart, but I also relate to what it feels like to shut it down. And then yeah. now at the age of 33, trying to reconnect with some of those more caring, more loving, also more fun, the humor, the class clown stuff. I, I was the same as you when I was a kid. But, you know, at some point it got lost. And so I'm really enjoying the process of reconnecting with that now. Can you relate to that of, of process of kind of having to shut that down a little bit? Or is it stay pretty constant as you've got older? You know, I, I think I I think I've experimented quite a few times with trying to unleash my inner bro and like, you know, trying to be like the dude, you know, the, the quintessential dude, which yeah. is me being as unfair to masculinity as I thought kids were being to femininity. Right. So that, that's me being unfair too. that brotherhood always looks like beating your chest and, you know, fucking grunting and shit. Right. That's that's not masculine energy either. Um, so, so, okay, well then, yeah, so great. So it is, yeah, that, and that's awesome. Like, and I think there are parts of that and I, and I've done some experimentation with that and it just didn't, didn't feel right to me. I still felt like I was, I was not being kind of authentically myself. And so I kind of, I kind of feel like that it's been a, a really big shift for me in the last year or so, I would say maybe even shorter, maybe even six months, but really in the last year and I'm building up over the last four years that I've been doing this work. You know, I got out of corporate six or seven years ago, had a couple other kind of more traditional startups, but didn't really get into this work as we know it, coaching, speaking, teaching, whatever until about four years ago. And, and so I think it started a lot during that, you know, at the start of that four years and has really gotten solid in the last, you know, year, uh, six months to a year, especially where I don't really give a fuck anymore that like I realize that there's actually, for me, there's no such thing as being inauthentic because however I'm being in the moment is authentically the way that I believe I want to show up or I need to show up. I'm authentically faking my bro or I'm authentically being empathetic or I'm authentically listening to somebody or I'm authentically pretending to listen to somebody. Like I'm being authentic at all times, right? Whatever's showing up for me is authentic at that moment. And so by me not making myself wrong for however I show up in the moment, it tends to have relieved some of the pressure of needing to show up a certain way in a given moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really makes sense. Yeah, yeah it really makes sense. And I, I see it in you too, like watching you speak right. and watching you perform. It's such a beautiful thing to watch and it's really given me permission to let that side of me come out because, yeah, you, you, you have this beautiful sense of expression and laughter and, you know, just when I, whenever I see you, it makes me smile. <laughs> so it's cool. It's, it's cool. And I love that you being that way gives other people permission to feel that way too. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that. And that's like, you know, that's one of the greatest compliments that people can give to me. You know, I've, I've said this to, to people before, you know, there's two really big things that I just love to hear. And, and it's, you know, you, you always love to hear that, oh, your work did this or your work did that, or it helped me do this or help me do that. But there's, there's two things that I really, really love hearing. One is when people tell me, like if people, you know, listen to a podcast like this or whatever, or see me speak or, or see something online and then they meet me in person and they go, wow, you're the exact same person online as you are in real life. That's like the number one compliment, right? Because integrity for me and, and that whole authenticity piece, right? Like just showing up as me and kind of zero fucks given in, in that way. That's, that's really important to me. But the other thing that I really love is when people say what you just said, like that gives me permission because I can't tell you how many times in my life I have felt like I couldn't fully unleash myself that like, even when I showed up as you know, the funny, enthusiastic, joyful guy that I still had to kind of tone it down because maybe like, what if it's too much for some people sure. to handle? 
And so like I've had so many people that have kind of, you know, indirectly given me permission to, to, to really show that. And I mean, that's people like Steve Chandler and people, you know, people that that we both know. Right. Like that are that are more accessible. But even people like Robin Williams, who, you know, and that's I guess that even could lead us into another conversation here based on what I know that your mission is. But, you know, Robin Williams is somebody who was taken or took himself way too quickly from this earth. And, and I'll miss him tremendously. But he's somebody who never toned it down. And, and if you watch, you know, there's this great episode of him on uh, Inside the Actor Studio with James Lipton. Have you ever seen that show before? Yeah, I've seen it once before, yeah. Yeah, a great show. And, and there's a great clip of him being on. And it's so funny because like the first 10 minutes of the interview, James Lipton can't get a fucking question in because Robin <laughs> is just, he's just fucking performing. He's just feeling it. And it's, you like it's not and it's not a performance like he's fucking channeling the energy of the room and he's just shit is just coming to him and he knows that the best way he can serve is just to not censor himself and to let that stuff come out and when i see somebody like that do that i'm like you know what fuck if it's too much for some people fuck if it's too much for some people like don't tone down the parts of you that you know are your genius because there are people in the world that will see that and be like oh my god that gives me permission or oh my god that makes me smile great fucking let those people you know, love and enjoy you and let everybody else go find a messenger and a message that fits more with them. So, so me kind of leaning more into realizing that nothing is at risk in my life. Nothing is at risk about who I am as a human being by showing up 100% fully in whatever I'm feeling in that moment. That to me is like a super freeing thing. And I hope that's what people are seeing when they say they think I'm giving them permission. Wow, absolutely. And is it has there ever been any negative feedback from it? Like, there's that fear there to start with. Like, if I'm too much, then that's going to scare people off, or whatever the fear is. Has it ever yeah. actually realized since you've been more fully in this space? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get it. You know, with the story goes through my head that that's proof every time I get an unsubscribe on my you right. know my newsletter. Or, or I had somebody really, really close to me that I was really excited to to share. Somebody who's known me pretty much my entire life. I was really excited to share with them something that that I was working on, and I shared with them like a a video for an event that I was putting together. And they, you know, they didn't tear into me. It felt like they were tearing into me, but they said, you know, well, you know, you really talk too fast, and, and there's too much energy, and I think people are going to be turned off. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's, yeah, it's yeah, it's too much energy, and and you know, you really should be a little more grounded, a little more stoic, and. And of course, immediately that comment entered my ego and my, my baby assassin, which I write about in my book, Prison Break, my baby assassin came out in his little ninja uniform and said, see, I told you you're too much. You're too fucking much. You're going to fucking turn people off. Look what's happening. Even this person that's close to you is telling you this. Yeah, just he's he's sitting there waiting in the shadows, just waiting to attack, waiting to have somebody agree with him so he can come out of the shadows and just fuck up my entire world. And so like I, I had that feedback come in and I really had to slow down and say like, okay, great. Like, what is this a call for me to do? Is this a call for me to shrink and, and take one person's opinion as to say that I should, I should put everything away or tone everything down? Or is what's trying to emerge here is me really being courageous and me stepping into what I know is my genius zone and how I can most impact the right people. And so anytime I get that kind of feedback, which I do, I've gotten it several times from people, people that I know, like, and trust, not just strangers. It even came up during my TEDx interview, which was hilarious to me that when I, before I did my TEDx talk, there was like, you know, a panel interview I had made through the first couple rounds. And then in that interview, the feedback was, yeah, you know, I just, my concern is that you're going to be talking about, you know, this subject matter based on what you told us your talk is about. And I don't know, you know, you just, you talk really fast. And I just wonder if you're the person to actually be delivering message. Wow. 
And I had to step back and say, okay, what's this a call for me to see? And when I stepped back, I said, oh shit, I get it. And this has been huge for me, Nathan, is that I get it. Like the reason I'm the person to teach about being a self-leader and not a prisoner is because I'm a fucking prisoner a lot. And the reason that I'm the person to teach about living a not so serious life is because I have a lot of fucking serious moments. And the reason I'm the guy to teach people about slowing down is because I need to fucking slow down. Like I'm the perfect person to teach this stuff because it's the stuff that I'm working on in my own life day in and day out. You teach what you need to remind yourself every day. Totally, dude. Totally. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I love that you're honest about that, about people unsubscribing or people not buying into that part of you. And I like what you said. It becomes a filter. You know, yeah. and of course you have the moment, the ego moment, and that might last last a minute or it may last a week. But yeah. eventually you, you come to realize, hey, this is a filter for my people. And that's beautiful. I, I, I got a lot out of that story. Cool. Thank you, man. Let's talk about the weight. Do you, do you mind talking about, you know, the, the, the path to putting on the weight and losing the weight? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, we can totally talk about that. I mean, it's been, it's been such a big part of my life and, and no pun intended. Yeah, yeah, literally. Yeah. And, uh, and, let and that one go. they couldn't, no, you couldn't let it go. I, I wouldn't want you to, if you did, I would have just hung up and, and canceled the rest of the interview. And it I mean, it really was like the background for so much. It was, it was a part of my identity for so long. And, and you know what, even, even 130 pounds down, 130 pounds plus down, it's still, it's still a part of my identity. Like that, you know, that doesn't just go away. I, it's, I'd love to say like now, every time I look at her, I, I pose, and I, I think about what a beautiful, you know, sculpted body I have. And that's, well, not the case. It's, it's not the truth and it's not the case. And I still, you know, look in the mirror and I still adjust my clothes and I still wonder how I look when I'm on stage. And, you know, those are still things that, that stick around. But, you know, the difference now is that I have the tools to kind of question those thoughts when they pop in my head and see if they serve me or not. So, so, but I guess that's, that's kind of jumping ahead. So my, yeah, my entire life, I had been really big again, you know, being raised by a single mother who worked a lot. She didn't cook. She wasn't somebody who cooked my mom. I, there was always a joke. My mom could always make, could, could only make two things. It was scrambled eggs and reservations. Those are the two things that she could make. And, and so, so there wasn't a lot of, you know, cooking in the house. So there was a lot of eating out. There was a lot of fast food. There was a lot of pizza. There was a lot of, you know, just stuff that's not super healthy because it was easy, right? It was convenient. And so that coupled with the fact that I just, you know, only child, you know, didn't, didn't have like brothers and sisters to maybe go outside and play with, you know, lived in Florida. So it was super hot. So it was an easy excuse to, you know, say I couldn't go outside and play and food became a reward kind of thing. So it's like, it became a reward and a comfort. So, you know, even into my, you know, my twenties and, and, and into my very early thirties, it's like, oh, I'm going to have a really tough, stressful day at work today. I should go get two bacon, egg and cheese biscuits and two hash browns from McDonald's in the morning because that'll that'll set me up for the day to make me feel good. Or, hey, that was a great stressful day and I can't believe I got everything done on my plate. Uh, let's go get some pizza. So it was like, you know, food just became such a big part of my identity that it just overtook uh, so many aspects of my life. So I had gotten up to the point in my you know, late twenties, early thirties, where I'd gotten to 332 pounds. And, and, you know, now I'm six foot one. So I, you know, not five, seven, like I was when I was 15, but, but still, even at six foot one, 332 pounds, that's, that's in the morbidly obese category. I was, you know, upwards of 40% body fat 
and you know, I, I, I was pro I was on track to have, you know, diabetes and heart disease and, and all these different things that could have killed me before I was, you know, 40 or 50. So I finally was, you know, took control of that. And, and I had this whole story, which I, I won't recount the whole story now, but it's the, basically the entire first chapter of my book tells the entire story of kind of how this transition happened and, and what the catalyst was, what the, what the final wake up call was. I had had wake up calls my whole fucking life. I mean, you know, it's when people say like, and then in this moment, I realized like you're fucking lying. You, if you've had something going on in your life for a long time, you've had wake up calls forever. You just hit the snooze button. I mean, that's what really happens, right? Yeah, so, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, this was the time where I finally listened where like, it was one of those, have you seen that alarm clock that like you set the alarm clock and then it like rolls off your table. And then like in the middle of the night it goes and like rolls around your room. So once it goes off in the morning, you have to get out of bed to go turn it off. Have you seen that? Yeah, that's cool. It's, yeah, it's amazing. And so that's like what I finally had. Like I finally had a wake up call where I couldn't just reach over and hit the snooze button. I had to like go chase it around in order to turn it off. And in that chase, I was like, Oh fuck, what am I doing here, man? What was and the so wake up call? What was the one that stuck? Yeah. So the one that stuck, and this is where the, the story is in the book. So I, I, I'll do it a disservice by, by telling sure. it, you know, fairly quickly, but it was just a time basically where my, my credit card had gotten declined when I tried to make a purchase uh, on Amazon. And so I called the bank to find out why it had been declined and they had uh, deactivated my card because of potentially fraudulent activity on the account. And so when I asked them what were the fraudulent charges, because I wanted to find out what the hell was going on and if my identity had been stolen or my credit card had been hacked or what had happened, they said that the day before there had been four fast food transactions in one day and they assumed that somebody had stolen my card and they were testing it to see if it would work before they were make, you know, they'd make a bigger purchase. And of course, the truth in that situation was that I had actually eaten at four fast food restaurants in one day. And that was, you know, the day I say the universe cut me off that a billion dollar bank stepped in and said, dude, you're fucking out of control and we're taking away your access to your own money because you don't make good choices. And uh, and so that was the day where it was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Is it really this big a deal? Like, who? so what? I went to Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and McDonald's and Burger King in one day. Like, what the fuck? Who cares? And it was just in that moment where, you know, I had this mantra my entire life, my entire life that I can remember, you know, from the time maybe I was, maybe it was even before I was a teenager, but my earliest recollection is of being a teenager where I had this mantra and the mantra I had was who can I blame? And it's like, you know, whose, whose responsibility, whose responsibility is it? Who can I blame for what I'm feeling? And that was, you know, and that's a way that a lot of us, I think, live. And it's a way that a lot of people that come to me that work with me initially live where it's like, you know, this person cut me off in traffic, you know, fuck that person. I'm going to blame them for this. And my colleagues are idiots and my boss is too demanding and my clients don't understand. And, and it's all these things about just not taking personal responsibility. And, and that was how I walked around in the world, especially with my weight was like, who can I blame? Oh, I can blame my mom for not cooking enough meals. I can blame the weather for not being comfortable enough. I can blame my genetics for making me big bone, like a stegosaurus. Like there's so many things I can blame, but in that moment, for whatever reason, I could not figure out someone else to blame. Like I really wanted to like, and, and stuff, I remember stuff bubbling up. Like I, I started to blame like, well, it was a really busy day and I didn't have time for lunch. And at the same time, something kicked in and it's like, well, what about the day before and the day before that? And all those other days where there was maybe time for lunch and you still just went to fast food. And so it became like this burning platform where I either was going to go up in flames or I was going to jump. And in that moment, I, I don't know why. I would love to be able to like give this inspirational story of why this one finally clicked, but I just couldn't find someone to blame. So just out of necessity, I had to start taking responsibility. Mm. And what happens from there? The what worked and what didn't work on that 
you know, the process from there. Yeah. So then what's, what I'm supposed to say is the Rocky theme music kicked in and I went and, you know, switched into a sweatsuit and, and started jogging 15 miles a day. And like, none of that shit happened. You know, I, I went back to my office. I was super pissed off at what happened. And, and now I was actually, I did find someone to blame. Now I blame myself. You know, big difference now is that when I see that I'm the source of the problem, I see that I'm also the source of the solution. So I don't need to blame or shame myself. I can see, you know, again, what it's a call for. But back then I didn't, I wasn't as spiritually enlightened as I am now. I didn't levitate when I meditated back then. So, uh, you know, I was still beating myself up like, oh, you fucking idiot. Yeah, you did this to yourself. You're 330 pounds because you're not a control fucking fat ass. And so even then it wasn't like I was, you know, doing it the, the spiritually enlightened or productive way. But it did draw me to like this thing where it's like, okay, listen, something has got to change. I feel like shit. I look like shit. I'm sick of, you know, literally, dude, I would, and, and my, my wife was with me when I was at this weight. So, you know, she got in on the ground floor of a good investment. We've been together for you know 11 years and, and she was there with me when I was 330 pounds. And so you could ask her, she saw me literally like be in fucking tears in the closet because my clothes just wouldn't fit me. And I was trying everything in my power to like get the, get the, the, the pants to fit a little bit better than they were and tucking in the shirt in a way where it wouldn't untuck itself because it was just so, so exasperating. And then like ripping clothes sometimes or either by accident or because I would get so furious because my body would just feel so tight with all these clothes. And like the only thing I could do is like rip the clothes off my body, like literally rip them off me because I was just so pissed and so angry at myself. So like it didn't, it wasn't like this beautiful spiritual awakening and everything opened up, but I realized like, that's just not the way I want to live anymore. Like there's gotta be something better. I don't know what it is. I don't care. I just got to figure out something. And I had tried diets and different things my entire life. And so finally I decided to research a much more drastic sounding solution. And that was bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery. And so I did research on that. My wife and I researched it together and went to all these different educational seminars and things on it for the better part of a year, had to go through psychological evaluations, had to do a lot of stuff to, to prepare for this and decided that was what I wanted to do, or that's what we wanted to do uh, for me. She didn't have it, just me. And so I ended up having the surgery back in 2011. So May of this year will be six years. And even that was something that I didn't want to talk about at first. I, you know, it was, and there's a lot of celebrities that have had weight loss surgery that don't want to talk about it. And, and why is that? Because we think something's at risk, like our enoughness is going to be in question and, oh, you know, you're weak and you couldn't do it on your own and what a loser. And, you know, these are the things they would say behind your back. Oh, well, this is, that, that was a shortcut. That was a silver bullet. And, and so I never wanted to talk about it, you know, but, but the key is, the truth is, is that that shit is fucking hard. Like, you know, sure, you, you lose some weight initially, but in order for you to really get into a place where you've lost you know, as much weight as I have and kept it off over six years when a, a lot of people will gain everything back and then some within the first two or three years, it takes a level of changing your relation. I won't even say discipline. It changes your relationship. You have to change your relationship with your body, with food, with exercise, with how you live your life. So really having weight loss surgery and losing weight is no different than what you or I would do with somebody in a coaching situation. When they change the way they relate to the world in general, I had to change the way I related to food and to exercise and to my body in general. So it was a crazy, crazy thing, especially the first six months. I mean, I was just so, so committed, so disciplined to a very strict regimen. And then that loosens up after six months. And then it's just been a, you know, a moment by moment, day by day practice ever since with good days and bad days, up days and down days, you know, and just like anything else in life, but it's been an amazing journey. Yeah. It must be an amazing feeling. I know it's, it's always hard to acknowledge yourself and, 
and you know keep acknowledging the wins but to look back and see that you've still kept this weight off for all this time it must feel so good yeah it, it feels really good and and you know and then you also get to a point where you know once you've lost the weight and you always fluctuate at least for me I, you know i always fluctuate a few pounds here and there and and even even now in the past few months i've changed my diet up again and i've, I've done something brand new with the way that i'm i'm working out and eating and, and doing all this stuff that's helped me you know lose some of the weight that i had started to put back on i put back on maybe 15 or 20 pounds at one point and and now i've been able to relose all of that by changing this stuff up so it's always an experimentation it's always a you know a, 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 it's always a playground that you're on trying to figure out new ways to, to experiment with things. But one of the big things that I remember them teaching or not even teaching, I remember going to a support group meeting people who were post-surgery, post-op, and somebody had started saying this thing. And there were people in, in the post-op that were anywhere from like a week out of surgery to like, I think it was up to 18 months was this group. It was like the first 18 months. And so there were people that were like almost a year and a half out, way further ahead than I was. And, and so I'm like, you know, maybe three weeks out of surgery when I go to this post-op meeting. And I hear, I keep hearing people say this thing, NSV, like Nathan C word video, right? Like NSV. <laughs> so, so, so I'm like, NSV, what the fuck are they talking about? And then finally I like raise my hand and I'm like, you guys keep talking about this thing, NSV. And, and I kind of get it in context, but what does it mean? And they said, Oh, Oh, it's a great question. Uh, NSV is a non-scale victory. And I said, interesting, non-scale victory. Tell me more. And they said, essentially, we sometimes judge ourselves with weight loss surgery based on the number on the scale. And so if that number's not moving or it's not moving in the direction that we want, it can be very e easy to be discouraged because quantitative measure is the only thing that we're focusing on. So a non-scale victory is when you finally sit down in the airplane seat and your, your ass is not filling into the seat next to you or you don't need the seatbelt extender to, to put on the seatbelt. Yeah, you can uh, tuck or, your shirt in without worrying about it. You can, you can tuck your shirt in without worrying about it. You can sit in a booth at a restaurant without feeling super uncomfortable. These are non-scale victories, and that's stuck with me so much. And it's something that even as I'm saying it now, I'm realizing I really want to tap back into and practice more in my own life. You know, we live such an outcome-based life. I'll, I'll own my experience. I live such an outcome-based life that living in that way where it's all quantitative and it's all outcome based can really fuck with you when you're on the plateau or when you're in the process or when you're on the journey. So these non-scale victories, uh, which obviously can be equated to anything in your life are a great way to tap back in and say, you know what, dude, you're doing great. Like you're doing the best you can in this moment and the best you can may change in the next moment, or maybe it won't, but whatever it is, like you're doing great, you're showing up, you're alive, you're, you're being consistent, you're staying in the game. Like that's an amazing victory for us to celebrate, even if there's no outcome or milestone attached to it. Yeah, so good, so good. And I, f I feel like we're so quick to be disappointed in ourselves. And oh, yeah. I'll own that. I'm so quick to be disappointed in myself. Yeah. And when you yeah. jump on the scale and you've been on a diet, you know, in quotes, for a couple of weeks and the scale hasn't moved, it's like the, the, the first reaction is just disappointment. When in reality, I've felt great. I've had high energy. I feel in control of what I've been eating and putting in my body. All that's happened is the scale hasn't moved. So, Absolutely. But the NSVs have been through the roof. So, Absolutely. But, yeah, it's that hurry to be disappointed. I had yeah. a, I have a food coach, Daniel Thomas. He was on the show a couple of episodes ago. And oh, cool. he hates dieting. He hates the idea of the scales. He hates to lose 10 pounds in 30 days because yeah. it's such a false story. But it's an epidemic throughout the world, right, and especially in our countries where uh, there are a lot of overweight people. And as Tony Robbins said, you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. So the question is always, why am I fat? And the answer is always, you eat too much and stop eating, right? Right. Where 
Uh, and so, yeah, the answer becomes, well, lose 10 pounds in 30 days through doing this system, which is not sustainable. So Daniel just yeah. talks over and over and over about your relationship with food. What's your relationship with food? Find that out first before anything else. You can't do anything until you understand your relationship. And I, right at the start of you talking about this, when you said, you know, you ate to celebrate, you ate when you were depressed, that was your relationship with food. It was a, it was a, a tool for all these different things that were going on in your life. And yeah. yeah, I love that you brought that up because it's so important. And healing the relationship is what gives you those NSVs. Those are the real wins. And eventually the scales will come. Mm. Absolutely. Yep, you're right. And if not, you just move the scale around the bathroom until it finally shows you a, a lower weight than what you had yeah. the first time. Or just That's never get on the scale. Again. <laughs> <laughs> you just never get on the scale. Or you you make, you make have uh, your wife come behind you and kind of push up on your shoulder so it makes you lighter. That always works too. Or you do that thing where it's like, oh shit, my iPhone is in my pocket. You take the iPhone out and you go, oh shit, maybe if I take my pants off. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, I forgot to take a dump this morning. Let me yeah, go do that. Right. That's, that's 87 yeah. grams. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. I'm glad you can laugh about it. It's, you know, it's a, a big issue for so many people. So thank you for, for modeling you know, the, the reality of, of the process. I really appreciate that. My pleasure, man. So we first met at uh, Evercoach, uh, the Evercoach Summit. So Mind Valley, which I've talked about on the show a lot, is a huge personal development company, must be one of the biggest in the world now. And their coaching yeah. division is Evercoach, which you are very, very heavily involved with. And yeah. the Evercoach Summit, you were the host, the MC for the four days that we were there. And again, you were fantastic. Thank you, um, man. And yeah, I had felt an immediate connection with you. But two things I remember from that four days. One was meeting Rich Litvin and him changing my life. We talked about that just before the podcast. But yeah. the only other thing that really stuck with me was your presentation called Fuck Permission. Mm. And I was in Africa about two weeks ago doing some work in Liberia and we were doing lots of coaching and lots of different villages and everything in the first couple of days africa i found very overwhelming just these huge villages surrounding you and people you know swamping you and grabbing you and wanting you to play with them and entertainment entertain them and i I just found myself stuck in that position not sure what to do and there was this huge expectation of us leading something whatever it was and i just was stuck for the first few days and then Jason Goldberg kicked in in my head in that moment. And I said to the guys, we have a morning briefing every morning while we were there. I said, guys, you know, we're walking around waiting for permission to do something with these people. But I saw this incredible thing that stuck with me. This guy taught me about fuck permission and about Mm. how in life and so many things we're sitting around waiting for someone to go, oh, yeah, you can do that. Oh, yeah, you can do that. And in this example in Africa, it was like, go and play with the kids, go and form a group, go and take them and do some exercise training, go and whatever, you know. Yeah. So fuck permission became the the mantra of this two-week trip in my group around <laughs> Africa. And it was all because of you. And uh, I really wanted to share that story with you. Um, oh, and maybe great. you could just dive a little bit deeper into uh, why fuck permission is such a big concept for you. Yeah, dude. I, well, first of all, I love that, man. I, I love and, and I love the spirit of play that you brought to it. Right. It was like, fuck permission. Let's create something like this is this is like opportunity. There's so much fun opportunity here. Like, why the fuck are we waiting for permission? That's, yeah. I, I permission love that. that was never coming. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. And like and, and you wouldn't need it if, it if it came. I mean, that's you know, that's that's one of my favorite things is there's a you know a quote by this guy, uh, Nathaniel Brandon. Have you ever heard of Nathaniel Brandon before? No. 
So he wrote the six pillars of self-esteem and he, he just, he's done a, a ton of incredible work and he's, he's passed uh, now, but he was an incredible psychotherapist and, and he brought people together at one point into a meeting. And this is a story that was told to me by, by my coach and, and one of my creative partners, Steve Chandler, who I know we both know and love. And he told me the story of, you know, uh, Nathaniel Brennan bringing a group of people in that, you know, were having issues with taking action and were sad and, and had all these, you know, depression and all these things. And he, he wrote up on the board, no one is coming. And, and everybody looks at the board kind of in shock. And, and he says, that's, that's all you need to know, guys. No one is coming. Like no one's coming to save you. No one's coming to make it easy for you. No one's going to come and do it for you. Like no one is coming. And of course there was some smart ass in the room who raised their hand and said, uh, but Dr. Brandon, you know, you came and, and Nathaniel Brandon says, well, but I just came to tell you that no one is coming. Yeah, I just I, lo- I love that story. But but no one is coming is like it's very close to like fuck permission. It's it's the, the thing is, is that we have we lose sight of this. And, and it's one of the things that that was a, a real core core message in my TEDx talk that my TEDx talk was called how to manufacture fascination and engineer enthusiasm. And a big part of the core message of that is really the fact that we kind of have the ability to be super creative. And when I say the word creative, I don't mean painting, art, singing, dancing, but like creative with a capital C, like to be creators in our world, every action, every behavior, every word we are creating for better or for worse in every moment, that we have a real ability to be creative with our experience the world when we're kids. And then we kind of unlearn that. Like we get, you know, we, we get the conditioning of the world that tells us that that's unrealistic to be creative in that way. And so we let it go. And I think it's the, when we lose track of just how much creativity we have, just how much creativity we have access to that is innate. It, it may, it, it may not be normal for us, but it is natural for us. There is a distinction there between normal and natural, but it's, it is, it is natural for us when we have that level of creativity, then permission becomes a non-issue because now it's, I don't need permission to try this new thing out because whether it works or not, I'm creative and I'll be resourceful and I'll find a way to be resilient and make it, you know, make it work. I don't need permission to show up as who I want to show up as because there's nothing at risk in my life. I can be creative. If everybody turns their back on me and shuns me and says, you're too much, or I don't agree with you. Again, I can be creative enough to be resilient, to bounce back, to create what I want to create in the world. So the concept of fuck permission is much more about seeing that permission doesn't actually exist. It's like what I said in the talk was that we have two options in any given moment uh, when it comes to permission. Permission is like this big fire breathing dragon. And and it's something that it's it's debilitating for a lot of us. And we're waiting for permission. It feels like there's this huge monster that that's like bearing down to attack us. And so option one uh, is to figure out the tools and the techniques and the methodologies to kill the dragon before it kills you. To, to sneak up on it from behind and slit its throat, to, to do what you can to, to, to get rid of it before it gets rid of you. And that takes a lot of force and it takes a lot of creative energy that's not being used in the most productive way. And it takes no self-leadership. That's us totally being a prisoner to the fact that this thing is going to attack us. So we need to find a way to preemptively kill it. And to me, it just, when I think about like, how do I kill a dragon? And this can be used in so many contexts. How do I overcome resistance? How get through my fears, like all these things that feel very push and force and heavy. I don't want to do it. Like maybe I'm lazy in that respect, but I don't want to do that hard of work. Option two is to see that the dragon is a fucking shadow puppet on the wall. 
And it's because of the way that we have the light positioned in the room. It's because of the lens through which we are seeing the world in that moment that we have created this picture of a huge fire breathing dragon that we need to kill when in fact there's nothing for us to fight. And so when I sit back and say, oh, wait, so I have the choice to either fight to get permission or to see that there's no fight to be had, which does take more creativity and takes more self-leadership and takes more personal responsibility and takes more lightness, but it can be a much more fun thing to do because you're not wasting your creative energy. When I see those two things as the options, I'm like, well, fuck that. I don't want to, I don't want to fight against anything. I'm just going to create what I want to create and know that I'm going to be okay regardless and, and know that I'll figure shit out the same way I figured out everything else that I figured out to be able to be sitting here talking to you today. There's, there's nothing I've ever been through that I haven't been able to get through. And the same with you, Nathan, and the same with everybody listening, because if that weren't true, this shit wouldn't be happening right now. Yeah. And it's, it's, it kind of goes to what you were saying before about you learning to, you know, the high energy feminine side of yourself that bringing all that creativity to it and spending all that time worried that that's too much as opposed to just embracing it and throwing it out there. And the thing I love about folk permission is people can always say no. Because I realized yeah. after I heard you speak about this that I spent the first 30 years of my life going, oh, I better not in case they don't like that. I better not put myself out there in case they don't like it. I better not say that. I better not put my hand up. I better not volunteer. I better not whatever. You know, it was a big problem for me. And so never actually, you know, taking the action and doing that and putting yourself out there and leaning into who you are and trusting and all that, that good stuff you just said. In reality, embrace that lean into it be yourself and people can always say no stop don't <laughs> but yeah. making that decision for them is such terrible reverse logic yeah well it's it's unfair to them and it's unfair to you right it's you know it's it, it and 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 the fact is it's funny as you say that and i, I want to kind of you know reiterate something i said earlier a couple things i said earlier about you know why i'm so qualified to teach the things i teach is because it's the things i need to work on is that you know the whole fuck permission thing and seeing that permission is not a real thing, you know, that also goes into boundaries, right? Setting boundaries and, and also showing up as your authentic self. And all, a lot of these things go back to, you know, this same thing about permission. And to go back to the thing you asked about, like, you know, oh, have you seen people, you know, say you are too much or that, you know, I can't handle that or whatever. And we talked about that a little bit. I recently just had something happen that should be some kind of evidence or proof that I shouldn't be setting boundaries. And what I mean by that is I had somebody reach out to me and this, and this is something, this is one of these, you know, quality problems to have, but I have a lot of people that reach out to me and they want to, you know, they want to talk about coaching or they want me to help them with something. And, and, and I, and this is for a whole other conversation, I'm sure, but you know, the whole distinction of serving versus pleasing, I had to recognize that by me trying to help every single person that reached out to me, a, I was doing it from a place of ego because I, I wanted them to like me, right? I wanted to, to be a people pleaser, which was my MO for the first 30 years of my life. So I'm, I'm a recovering people pleaser for sure. So that was the first thing. And then two, like I really did want to serve them. And if I really want to be able to serve people, obviously I need to make sure I'm taking care of myself. And the way I can best serve people is to make sure that I'm setting up the conditions of the game in which I'm serving them, that I actually can serve them the most impactfully and they are the most open to receive that service. So that being said, I've had to say no to a lot more people. And so I had somebody and, and I've really leaned into, leaned into this and I was just talking to somebody else about this recently that I feel really, really good about how good I've gotten on setting professional boundaries, which again is a 
is a fuck permission thing, right? Like, oh, I need them to like me. And, and you know, I don't know if it's okay to say no. And so I feel like I've gotten really, really good at that. And then two weeks ago, I think it was two or three weeks ago, a person reached out to me and it was somebody I, I've met a couple times before. Actually, I think I've met once before and, and we have a lot of mutual friends. And so they're not like just some random stranger off the street, but, but they reached out to me and said, Hey, you know, I'd really like to have a conversation with you, you know, I, and, and I know you're real busy. So if you can't, like, that's totally cool, but I just wanted to reach out. And because it was somebody who I had some kind of, you know, knowledge of, and, and, and they were, you know, an acquaintance at least I wrote back and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I have a lot going on and I don't know if I'd be able to have a conversation right now, but tell me what's going on. Like, what is it that you would like to connect about? because they didn't tell me what it was. And they said, oh, I just, you know, just want to kind of talk to you and, you know, maybe like talk about a few things and like pick your brain on a few things. So they weren't being specific. And at that point, honestly, like I, I didn't have any desire to keep going. So I just said, listen, I have a lot of things going on, you know, right now. And, and I have commitments that I, I'm going to stay laser focused on. So I'm going to decline right now. And in the future, hopefully there's, you know, some, some, if there's some bandwidth and some time and space that develops and, and, and the time allows, then maybe we can connect in the future and I wish you the best. And the response I got was, oh, uh, well, thanks for being so frank. Didn't expect you to respond that way. I was thinking about hiring you as my coach, but I've changed my mind. Take that. And yeah. And that's dumb, dude. I'm not going to fucking sit here for a minute and say, oh, that's okay. I mean, I set the boundary and fuck permission and blah, blah, blah. And no people pleasing. That's dumb because immediately went back to like, oh my God, here's somebody now that hates me. Like, why would I, why was I so frank with her? Why didn't I just set aside time to talk to her? It would have been so helpful for her. It wasn't, it had nothing to do with the money of like having her hire me as, as a coach. I, there, I don't have a spot for her anyways. It was all personal. It was all my own shit coming up about like not being enough and letting people down and the people pleasing. And now she's going to tell everybody what an asshole I am. And then they're going to think that when they see me being nice and joyful, that that's an act and really behind the scenes, I'm an asshole. And like all these things happen. And, and I'm like trying to process this. And then literally like a couple hours later, I get a, a text from a friend and it was a, a group text with these people that I'm, I'm going to be putting on an event with. And they had texted me maybe a day or so before this saying, hey, can we have a call this weekend to talk about this event? And I had set the same boundary and said, guys, I love you. And I'm really heads down working on this particular project over the next week and traveling a lot. So I won't be able to do it. Uh, so I just wanted to let you know that like I won't be able to do this right now. But I do want to make sure that I'm setting the agreement up front of how much time I can allocate to this. So there's no guessing. And so I had done that like a couple of days before. So literally right after this happens with this person who is now, who I'm now feeling like I'm a total piece of shit and I can't believe this happened. And how could I do this to somebody? And now they hate me. I get a text back from these two guys and they say, you know what, man, the way you so gracefully set that boundary and let us know what you were committed to doing and how you were so upfront with letting us know what time you could commit to us and what time you couldn't, that is fucking inspiring. And I cannot wait to do more of that in my own business. And it couldn't have come at a more perfect time for me because it showed me that it's not my fucking responsibility how people receive my message in all in all senses of the word, whether I'm teaching or coaching or setting boundaries or speaking my truth. It's not my fucking responsibility. And when I take responsibility for everybody around me and try to manage their impressions and show up a certain way and hope they don't hate me it fucking drains my will to live. I don't have this mastered. I'm telling you, dude, this happened just in la last month. So it's still something that I have to play with and continue to practice and learn. But it was such a beautiful thing for me to see that the stark contrast and the way those two people handle that almost the exact same situation. And it just showed me like, you know what? Me showing up and setting these boundaries, it's for me. It's not for anybody else. If they get something out of it they can use and, and use as a model in their world, great. If they get pissed off, Maybe at some point they'll wake up to the fact that that's some shit they need to work on and that will serve them then. But none of that shit is my responsibility.
So sorry for the rant, but I hope that that's <laughs> helpful and makes sense. Oh, look, just get it off your chest. That's fine. That's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free to vent. No, it's 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 great. And I, a lot of the times, you know, even that, that, that woman might have responded in the heat of the moment. That's how she felt. But sure. she still will respect you, right, overall, I'm imagining. And I, I think that's more powerful. You know, people pleasing has no power, but respect has a lot of power. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm detached from that. And, and I actually wrote her back like a, you know, a, a loving message, probably more than I needed to. And actually my loving message back to her probably put me a little bit back into people pleasing. I didn't want to, you know, of course my first response is to write back, well, fuck you, bitch. Uh, but that, that wasn't what I wrote. Uh, instead I wrote back something that was much more heartfelt. And, and I, and I actually think I pointed to, to what was going on there and just said like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I hope that, you know, as your business continues to grow, that maybe this becomes a model of how you can make sure you're taking care of yourself. Yeah, right. And, and, and that she didn't, and I didn't need to do that. And that, again, that was probably partially ego and partially service, but anything, any response you get again is a call for you to step into something, whether it's courage or compassion or creativity or, or calmness or whatever it is, it's all a call for something that's for your greatest good. You know, I like it because I, I think so much of the stuff I've done in personal development, I always, I still get caught out with this of thinking if I just, when I read this book, then that will be the perfect final solution. And then I'll be expressing everything that I have and then everyone will love me. Like I'll find that yeah. the perfect solution where it's the meeting point of everything that I desire. Um, yeah. So again, it's great to see, okay, what's your priority? My priority is, you know, uh, being authentic, being myself, not people pleasing and checking in with that. And even though, okay, I've got a little bit of a negative response still at the core, I'm actually on the right track. And so again, yeah. thank you for modeling that. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thank you. So I said just before we started the podcast, the, the thing when I think about you, I think, man, he, he's everywhere. This guy pops up everywhere. You're a speaker. I love you have uh, the domain name. Is it Jason the Speaker? Yeah, Jason the Speaker. That's so cool. Yeah. You must have been so happy when you got that domain name. So I, well, I well you know, because – well, because my own domain, my own name was taken. So like JasonGoldberg.com was oh, taken. Cool. So I had to like, I had to get the Jason Goldberg. So now I have to sound like a pretentious <laughs> asshole every time I tell people, I am the JasonGoldberg.com. Like, yeah. So yeah, Jason, the speaker was a nice way to kind of get around that. Yeah, it's nice. So I see you speaking. You just put out the book Prison Break, which you mentioned. We'll come back and talk about that. Uh, I saw you did the TED Talk on manufacturing fascination. And then one of my favorite things to watch is the little YouTube videos that you do with Steve Chandler. <laughs> they come out and it's called the not so serious life which you can find on youtube and yeah. i love it so tell me a little bit more about how you got into that and yeah it's 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 great the not so serious life is you guys just bringing the funny to yeah. um to life which is nice Totally. Well, yeah. And, and I, I love doing that with Steve and we're actually, so we're, I haven't really, I don't know that I've talked about this in any podcast at all, but we're actually writing a book together called the not so serious life. So oh, great. Congratulations. Uh, so, yeah. So yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm make excited. Sure you come back on the show when it uh, releases and we'll, we'll give it a oh, plug. Totally. Yeah, I, I would love to do that. And, and it's been a really fun project. The way we're writing it is is really unique. We're basically like writing letters back and forth to each other. So it, instead of it being like chapters where he writes some chapters and I write some chapters, it's us kind of sharing our experience of the world and, and living in a not so serious way. And, and as we travel writing to each other from different countries and different states and different places and, and kind of chronicling that, you know, over the course of maybe, you know, nine months or a year. And that's what the book will be. So it's a really fun way to write a book that I've never done before. So it's really cool. But yeah, yeah, Steve is just so much fun. And, and I love that has really become, you know, self-leadership, which is the entire core message of the book Prison Break. And then the not so serious life, those two things intersecting have been 
what I realize now in retrospect, the the biggest transformation for myself and what tends to resonate the most with people who come to me for coaching or people that hire me to come speak at an event or, or at, a, at a corporate gathering, it's, it's all around those two messages. And so, yeah, I mean, those things have just been the things that I just kind of stumbled upon and realizing that we don't have to take shit so seriously. And it's not about like being aimless and being goalless. And it's not about like shooting people with Nerf guns all day and just goofing off and shit. It's, it has nothing to do with that. Living a not so serious life is about making things and, and thoughts and situations not as significant as we may have thought they were. It's, it's about being really sincere about what you commit to. It's about having a, a relaxed, clear, calm commitment to the things that are in front of you or to the thing that's in front of you actually to be more accurate not you can't have an attachment or a commitment to things that's one of the big issues in our world is i think that we've we think it's okay to pluralize the word priority for some reason uh but but focusing on the thing in front of you in a more calm relaxed way and it's just you know it's again one of those natural but not normal things that we are we are successful oftentimes despite our seriousness uh, if we were more calm and more relaxed, we'd have more access to our greatest gifts of, of creativity and showing up from that place. Like when you're focusing on the being before the doing and you're showing up in this place where you're light and relaxed and calm and, and, and no matter what's going on outside that may be chaotic, your inner mind is at least somewhat calm for at least a few minutes at a time. Uh, you just create things at a higher level. You're more, you're more productive. You have higher performance and the ability to be prosperous in your life and your business. It just comes more naturally or at least more effortlessly. So, so that's been the core for me. And again, something that I have to practice consciously on a, a moment by moment basis. Yeah. It seems like everything you're talking about, just as you're speaking directly to me, which is nice, but I, you know, I watched one of the shows of, of, of last week or something and Steve was making the point that joking around about life and these problems are very serious and the problems, people ask you questions on the show and you, you answer and give your perspective on these different life issues. And they're often very serious issues that people are struggling with. And Steve made the point, joking around about it doesn't make the issue any smaller and it's not to degrade what's going on in people's life. But mm -hmm. he's found that over his, whatever it is, 70 years that he's been on the planet, that being really serious about serious problems, finding really serious solutions to serious problems doesn't really help. But right. taking a really light, fun, creative approach, laughing at yourself to what are serious problems is a much more effective way to solve them. Absolutely. I mean, and that's that's the core message. And, and that all starts with, in my world at least, and, and in the message that I share, that all starts with really being conscious of of the thoughts that are in your head about the situation. And, and I won't even say the thoughts that you created because sometimes we don't create our thoughts, right? I, I have yet to be able to wake up and not think for the first hour of the day, right? Like not start thinking until I decide to start thinking. It just doesn't work that way, right? You, you wake up and thoughts appear and you're being thought, right? And so, and so I, I don't try to control my thoughts. They're, they're no different than spam email. I can't control spam coming in. I can direct it once it, once it appears, uh, but I can't control it coming in. So it's about seeing these things that pop in my head and dude, this is something I literally do. I mean, moment by moment, this is, I, I don't, I don't think this practice of being a self leader or, or, or living a not so serious life is any different than any practice of mastery. Michael Jordan never got to a point where he stopped practicing his jump shot and just, you know, said, coach, I'm going to, I'll be in the hot tub. Just call me when the game starts and I'll show up and, and rock it. You know, it, that it's, that's not the way it works. Not the way life works. It's, it's a constant game and it's a constant evolution. So, so for me, it's like when these thoughts pop 
up in my head and I'm like, oh shit, like, oh my God, I'm so swamped and I'm so overwhelmed and I have so much to get done. And, and, and if I don't get all this done, then I'm going to be a failure and my business isn't going to grow and I'm going to let people down. And it's like, that's all a story, right? And it's easy to say it's all a story. I actually, I actually don't like to call them stories. I like to call them simple fundamental misunderstandings, SFMs for short. It's just a, it's a, it's a very simple fundamental misunderstanding that just because a thought is in my head that it must be real, right? Just because somehow it appears in my head, I now own it and it's mine and I have to attach to it and I have to treat it like a fucking dolly that I take everywhere with me and brush its hair and call it my best friend. Like, and then I take it everywhere and it just wants to go away. It's like, dude, I didn't, I have no desire to stay in your head. Like I popped in here to kind of see what the surroundings look like. And I want to go, why are you holding on to me? Why won't you just let me fucking leave? And it's like dying to get away, but we're holding it hostage. So for me, I have to sit there and, and I have this thing, this tool that I use, I call it, I, I do, a, I call it my Britney Spears moment. And it's not like Britney Spears when she was like attacking the, the van with the umbrella with the shaved head. It's, it's, it's much more sweet and innocent than that. But the Britney Spears moment is when I'm sitting there and all these thoughts are going through my head and oh my God, I'm going to fail and I'm not enough and I'm going to let people down. I slow down for literally three seconds and I will say to myself, oops, I did it again, Right. I'm just, I'm caught up in this thinking again. There's a thought in my head. I'm taking it seriously. I'm believing it to be true just because it's there. I don't need to do anything with it at that moment. I don't need to reframe it. And that may be something I do. I mean, I'll create new stories and, 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 and use thinking that's more creative and more productive and more effective and more helpful than whatever my current misunderstanding is. But in that moment, it's enough for me to just say, oh shit, this is that movie that every time it comes on, I always turn the channel and I forgot to turn the channel and I'm just sitting here watching this movie. And when I can detach from the fact that I am not my thoughts, that I am the thinker of my thoughts, that I'm the vessel for my thoughts to exist, but I cannot possibly be my thoughts, that I existed before this stressful thought came in and I will continue to exist after this stressful thought is gone, when I can really separate those things and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just doing that thing again where, where I'm taking my thoughts seriously. What if I didn't do that for just a second? What if just for like the next 15 seconds, because anybody can do 15 seconds, right? What if for the next 15 seconds, I just didn't take that seriously? And it was like, it was like a, a four-year-old came in and said, you're going to let everybody down and you're a loser. And I'm like, all right, sweetheart, just pat them on the head and let them get out of their system. And then I'm okay again. And it's like, when I can do that, dude, life and work just is so much easier. So good. So good. Thank you for the 90s Britney reference (laughs) (laughs) to make it real for everyone. Always love. Yeah, I mean, it's a constant reminder. Like, again, you're speaking directly to me. And as you were talking, I was like, damn it, why do I always listen to my thoughts? Why do I forget this lesson? It's the the most basic lesson. And uh, I make no secret of it that, you know, like I'm not a great sleeper. So I wake up in the morning feeling like shit and... The Nathan Seawood that you know and love, it takes like a good hour in the morning to create that. You know, like I got to get up eventually feeling like shit, jump in the cold shower, cold shower every morning, go through a meditation, get a good breakfast in and just really get control of my thoughts, settle my mind down and start putting more empowering thoughts in there. But it's a process, man. Like, and it's a, it's a daily process to do the stuff that you're talking about. It, it really is. And, and, you know, I love that. And, and if, if, do you mind if I just offer something funny that popped in my head? Sure. Okay, cool. So, so I, I love that. And, and so, you know, the, the, the way I like to think about this too, is that I, I always say that there's, you know, you, you, if you have a car and in a plane too, I hope this doesn't happen in a plane too often, but in a car, when your gas is low, the gas light comes on, right? 
the, the, the little light flashes and says, hey, you're low on fuel. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, you know why I hope that doesn't happen in a plane because that's probably a little dangerous. But for a car, you know, the light comes on and it's the dashboard and the little light comes on and nobody in the world, at least that I've ever seen, and myself included, I have never had the little light come on and start screaming at the car for being a piece of shit. Right. You piece of, I can't fucking, but I put gas in you four days ago. What do you mean that after driving a thousand miles, I need to put gas in you again? You are such a piece of shit. I'm going to find a car that doesn't need me to do that all the time, which I guess now I could, I get a Tesla, but whatever. But the, the fact is like, nobody yells at the car for the light coming on. The light is simply an indicator, again, a call for something else to emerge. So if you, if you knew for a fact that feeling like shit in the morning was just your uh, little dashboard light coming on that says, hey, Nathan, it's time for your morning routine. Like, then you could kind of look forward to feeling like shit, right? Like, you, you don't have to make feeling like shit even a bad thing. Not that you are, but for anybody else who maybe is listening to this and they're like, yeah, dude, I feel the same way. I feel like shit in the morning and then I beat myself up for feeling like shit and for not getting a good enough, enough night's sleep and what am I doing wrong and, and why can't I sleep eight hours like everybody else? Like, instead of beating ourselves up, what if we saw that as like, oh, cool, I feel like shit. That must mean it's time for my morning routine that gets me in top physical and mental form. Like, that can be a part of the game if we want it to be. Yeah, I love that. So to make it make it a part of the fun, make it a part of the not so serious part of life. Yeah, and 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 the beauty there is that that's not. I mean, that that is the end goal in and of itself. But the kind of side benefit is that when we stop making ourselves wrong for what we're feeling, whether that's feeling like shit in the morning or whether it's beating ourselves up because we're stuck in our thinking again, which is definitely mine, uh, or or whatever it is that we beat ourselves up about, when we stop making ourselves wrong for that, a lot of times it just goes away. A lot of times it's kind of like a you know, like a, like a bored kid that if you like stop paying attention to them when they're like, you know, mummy, 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 and like tapping you on the shoulder and stuff, when you just ignore that for a few minutes, they get bored and go away. The same thing will happen with these feelings. If we kind of just like, don't pay a lot of attention to them, they'll kind of just get bored and go away. And so that's kind of a nice side benefit of loving feeling like shit or loving that you're getting caught up, caught up in your thinking again. It's not that you want that to stay. It's that if you don't make it a big deal, a lot of times it gets bored and goes away. Yeah, that lovely chapter in your book. I love the title. It's called "Your Intuition Is Drunk." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it kind of uh, it speaks to this a little bit, right? It does. Yeah, it does. That, yeah. That's a lot of people's favorite chapter. And, and honestly, I, I say this in all sincerity that I reread parts of my book on a regular basis. Right? Sure, I mean, like, it's I, written by you for you, right? It, it, it completely was like if nobody else read it, like I needed it and that's why I wrote it. And I think that's a very like people say that a lot. And, and when they write, well, I wrote this book because I needed it. Like, no, I fucking needed it. And, and there are plenty of times where I'll be, you know, in the gym in the morning and just really caught up in my thinking. And I'll be like, all right, I got to fucking like this baby assassin's going crazy. And even though I wrote it, I'm not in touch with it in this moment. I need to go back and reread that chapter. And the intuition is drunk. One is one that I go back to a lot because I am the type and I actually don't remember. Yeah, I think this is in the chapter. I guess I need to go reread it again. But, you know, I used to do this thing where anytime I was feeling super low is the time I thought I needed to make big life decisions. And that's still something that happens to me when I feel like a really low state of mind or I'm really physically tired or whatever. Then for some reason, I'm like, you know what? I should definitely plan out what I'm going to do with the rest of my life right now. And that's like the worst fucking time in the world. So I will go back and read that chapter when I'm feeling kind of in a low state of mind. And it really does help. I mean, it, it, it helps me a lot. Sure. Yeah. And explain what the, the book's called Prison Break. So explain uh, the title. What does it mean, Prison Break? And you've already touched on it quite a bit, but the concept of self-leadership, the difference between uh, being in prison compared to being a self-leader. 
Yeah, totally. So yeah, so my, my belief is, and my experience is, I guess it's not really a belief, it's my experience is that at any given moment we can approach any given situation or person or challenge or opportunity as a prisoner of circumstance or as a self-leader, as a leader of our own lives. One takes no creativity and is, is us being a real bystander uh, of life, you know, kind of at the liberty of the economy and the song on the radio that reminds us of our ex-girlfriend and, and any self-imposed limitations or beliefs that have been handed down to us from our family and our friends and our teachers and the media and all those things where we basically become victims to the world around us and we don't take any kind of sense of ownership or leadership of our own spirit and our own energy and our own creativity. That's what it feels like when we're being a prisoner. The other side of that is that we can just as simply shift to being a self-leader, which is somebody who does all those things, who owns their spirit, who owns the fact that creativity is always going to be greater than circumstance. And there is no circumstance you could face that isn't just a call for you to be 5% more creative. And when we live as self-leaders, instead of being, you know, led by our thoughts, we lead with our thoughts. We, we look at our thinking. We challenge our thinking. We inquire into our thinking. We don't just take it at face value. We don't believe everything we think. We don't take it all so seriously. And so it's a way of living that's much more relaxed and much more creative. And, and even if the actions you take don't change at all, the energy that you bring to those actions are going to make those actions more effective and you're going to feel better in the process and it's more sustainable. So again, at any given moment, it's just kind of looking through the lens of being a prisoner, saying, who can I blame? And looking for a scapegoat and not taking personal responsibility and blaming the weather and the, the lack of home cooked meals and the genetics, or it's being a self leader that says, cool, given these situations, I'm not lying to myself. I'm not saying I didn't get into a car accident. I'm not, not saying I didn't lose my job. I'm not saying my kid didn't get suspended from school. Given these conditions of the game that I'm being faced with, what would I like to create? What would be really fun for me to do here? How can I be 5% more creative or 5% more conscious? What can I do here given this situation to create the best possible outcome for myself and for the people around me? Yeah, it's a great book and it's, it's, uh, it's a great read and I really enjoyed uh, getting through it and it's a lot of other people have really enjoyed it. I've seen a lot of buzz about it and there's a lot of, a lot of talk about it when it was released a few months ago. So congratulations. And Thank you, man. you have some exciting news for our listeners about the book. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to make sure, you know, I, it was so funny when the book first came out and the publisher, you know, they wanted to get into bestseller status status. And of course, you know, my ego wanted to be a bestseller too. And, and so we got, to, yeah, we got the bestseller status and it was like number one in like two major categories, motivation and leadership in like eight different countries. And it was wonderful. I loved it. So and, and oh my God, you should just see the royalties from book sales. Oh man, it is at least four cents per book. <laughs> uh, so anyways, so it's, you know, the royalties are not a big deal, but what I got, what I got from that after that once the publisher was done doing their thing and, and getting another notch in their belt. And again, I'm not making fun of them because I wanted the bestseller status too. But after that was done, I was like, you know what, dude, I don't really give a shit about this anymore. I don't care about like sales of the book. This, you can still buy the book on Amazon. You can, all that stuff is fine. And if people buy it, that's fantastic. And they leave reviews, that's even better. But really my, my desire here is to get this message out into the world. And that has been the most, you know, I don't, I don't smile when I get a deposit in my account from Amazon. I smile when I get a Facebook message or somebody shares it on Facebook or leaves an Amazon review saying that, you know, this fundamentally changed their life. So why wouldn't I want to do more of that? And so what I want to do now as much as possible is give people the opportunity to get access to the book right now for free. And so I want to do that for your listeners. So I've created a, a special link for you guys. I don't, I don't, 
publish this everywhere, but, but for you guys, I created a link. It's just the Jason Goldberg.com slash Nathan. And I'm sure you'll put that somewhere in show notes or something. And you can go there and you can get an absolutely free copy of the PDF or the Kindle version. And if you're in the U S and you want a paperback version, there's a place there for you to get that as well. You pay for shipping and handling a few bucks, but the book itself is free. And so any way that you consume content like this, uh, it is there for you as my gift. And I hope that you love it. That's beautiful. Thanks, Jason. I'm so grateful for it. It's very, very cool and very, very special gift for the listeners. And my pleasure. I know the next step is to work with you. you. You have a new course coming out. Can you tell me a little bit about what that's about and what people can get from it? Dude, I could literally just scream the F word for the next 20 minutes. So I am so excited because I'm so excited, not because I'm pissed. So I'm so excited uh, because this is going to be like, this is something where I've wanted to do a course like this for so long. And I finally, you know, have done my own work enough to, to really, you know, kind of love my own resistance and, and to, and to create despite the resistance. And I've created this uh, course that is going to be a live online course. So it's going to be eight weeks long, uh, with some of the, just the best, everything that I possibly could share. I put in this one course, maybe I've shot myself in the foot and I'll never have another idea for another course, but I wanted this to be the thing where like, if I die the day after the course comes out, all my, my best stuff is documented. So like it can live on without me. And so it's an eight week course. We'll have, you know, video content that'll come out every week with really, you know, incredibly deep, impactful principles and practices, and then also an entirely separate video to go along with that. That's all tools and exercises and ways to apply the things you learn in each of the, the modules. I actually call the modules fundamentals because they are fundamental, but we're having a lot of fun in the process. So there'll be eight weeks of that and a, a live weekly call with me every week of the eight weeks. So there's some live group coaching there. So you can get one-on-one -on -one coaching in a group environment, which is one of the only ways people can still coach with me because I'm not taking one-on-one -on -one clients long-term anymore. I'm only doing two-day VIPs with them. So the title of the course is still up in the air. My content manager is in the next room. So if I say this, she may storm in and be like, we're not calling it that. But right now, what I really, what's sitting with me, and I'd love to hear your, your take on this in real time. What's sitting with me is the course is about how to really, you know, joyify your mind, gamify your life to get shit done, to be high performance, you know, high productivity and without all the struggle. And so the name that I really, really love is playful prosperity. And, and just a way to really have fun and be playful and still create prosperity in your, your inner and your outer world. So I'd love to hear from you. What do you think of that? How does that strike you? And you can be totally honest, even though it's on the podcast. I'm fine with it. I love it because it's alliteration. Mm. <laughs> I but, love alliteration too. Yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. That, uh, that's beautiful. A beautiful title that encapsulates you perfectly. Like it's everything we've talked about. You love prosperity and just that, that core fundamental of having fun and not taking life so seriously and looking at these problems playfully that, that for me that encapsulates you perfectly so i love it well thank you man i appreciate that so so i'm super excited about that we'll, we'll be launching it uh, i don't know when this will come out but we'll be launching it in march the actual start date will probably be somewhere in april and if you go to my website thejasongoldberg.com i'm sure once it launches that will be there and if you join my newsletter list there which i send out weekly videos and, and really fun stuff then you'll definitely be notified once that comes out if you're interested yeah, that's beautiful. So I'll put all the links to that, all the, the, the links to the free book, all the links to the course when that comes out will all be in the show notes. Uh, so the book is called Prison Break. We can find you on YouTube for your show with Steve Chandler, The Not So Serious Life. Your TED Talk is called How to Manufacture Fascination. That's and right. Jason, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm just uh, so glad that we crossed paths last year at Evercoach. And yeah, it feels like the start of a very long, playful, prosperous relationship. 
Oh, dude, I, I totally agree. And and as I was telling you, and you know, before we started this, the, the way you show up in the world is is beautiful and powerful and inspiring and and authentic and willing and playful and fun. And the fact that you're doing this work in the world and, and guiding men in the way you are and, and sharing your gifts and sharing your vision for how the world can look, it's, it's super, super important work. And I feel like you're the perfect guy to be doing it. So thank you for what you're doing in the world. It impacts so many people. I really appreciate that. And that means a lot coming from a man like yourself. So I will, uh, I will take that compliment. Thanks, Jason. And uh, thank you again for the free book. And we look forward to having you on the show again soon. Absolutely, man. My pleasure. Much love. I'll see you soon. Thanks, brother. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Jason Goldberg. What a special man he is. And I really enjoyed that conversation with him. And lucky for you guys, a free copy of his book. As a reminder, go to thejasongoldberg.com slash Nathan to get a free copy of his book, Prison Break. You can also sign up for his course, Playful Prosperity, on the site as well. Uh, as always, I'd love it if you could share this around, give it a like, give me some comments. Like, Let me know what you loved about this interview through the Facebook page. Facebook is Nathan R. Seaward. And I'd also love it if you could give this a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds to do it, and it makes a big difference to me. So thanks, guys. I appreciate you tuning in. I love you as always. And I'll be back next week for episode 16 of The Nathan Seaward Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.